Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Andrew Bowser. And I'm Sapphire Sandalo. And this is Alter Weekly. Coming up on today's show, we talk with the Monster Squad. We're joined by Andre Gower, Ryan Lambert, and Henry McComas to discuss the 1985 cult classic and the companion documentary, Wolfman's Got Nards. Then we talk with writer Aaron Pruner about how the real-world horrors of being a father has affected his relationship with the horror genre. Then, at the end of the show, we'll tell you how you can help us decide what to watch next on The Alter Society. But first... I have to give a very special thanks to you, Sapphire. <laughs> a little <of> me? <laughs> yeah, for sending me an awesome Christmas gift. Thank you so much. Do you know how fortuitous this gift was? I, I mean, I, I don't know. Why? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, well, yeah, because I know you well enough now to know that this <laughs> candle needed to get to you sooner than later. <laughs> well, Sapphire sent me a candle from House of Tuish- Intuition. Mm-hmm. House of Tuition. It's a really wow. cool, like, college-themed candle shop. Stay away. <laughs> yeah, stay away from the House of Tuition. Uh, the House of Intuition. It's a candle that says obstacle remover. And let me tell you, I was in my garage. I can't say what project I was thinking about, but I've been thinking about this big project that you know about. Mm-hmm. And I'm not doing that thing people do. I'm not playing coy, like... I can't tell you what it is. No one gives a shit. There's no one telling me not to say anything about the project. I just mean it's a project I myself haven't quite launched yet. Or, and and, and I'm honestly kind of still in my head about whether or not I should do it. That's why I don't want to talk about it. Not because I have a team of reps telling me to keep, it on, the, keep it on the low. Um, and I literally was in my head about this project when you said, hey, check your mail. And I was like, what? Oh. And I'm in my in my head, I'm like, man, should I do this thing or not? I mean, fuck. I mean, I want to, but think about all the things that could go wrong. And like, also, it's going to be really embarrassing if it doesn't work out. And a lot of people are going to be like looking at you like, oh, shit, that thing didn't work out. He's such a loser. And then I open this box and pull out this candle that just says obstacle remover. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, oh, my gosh. It also, not only do I need this, but it. I need to see those things I was wrestling with as obstacles. Yes. Because I see them also as just like reality or Mm. that's the voice in my head that I got to listen to and let me see how much he shit talks himself. And uh, and instead it was like, no, those are fucking obstacles. Just looking at the candle made me redefine those thoughts in that moment as obstacles. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was like, so so literally the first thing on my list as far as obstacles to remove and let me know if this counts or if the candle, if it's like, I mean, I guess it, whatever I think counts, counts if it's for me, but self-doubt. Yes. That was like the first thing when you said, okay, here's how the candle works. And, you know, when you light it, say what your obstacle you're looking mm-hmm. to remove. I was like, fucking self-doubt. First one. This candle's first job is to help me remove self-doubt. 
Why don't you tell people what exactly this candle is supposed to do and how it works and what's at the base of it? Like, what what is the uh, thinking behind yeah. it? Yeah, so um, these... I love these candles. Um, I've Every time I have had one from this place, um, it has done something. Actually, every time I light candles, it does something. Everyone should light candles all the time. Like, it truly does... Um, I mean, I don't really know the whole thinking behind it, but I do. It's something about like the heat, like, and you're literally changing the energy of your space when you light a candle, because mm-hmm. um, heat is energy. And so, um, mm-hmm. the point of this, these particular candles, is um, every time you light it, you're supposed to think of your intention, whatever you want. So, in your case, getting rid of your self doubt. So, as the candle burns down. Um, and all the wax disappears at the very bottom there are a couple crystals and so now because every time you have lit the candle you've thought about this thing now every time you see those crystals it's supposed to remind you of that and honestly that's really all crystals are like I don't really think they have any actual magical properties they're really just a reminder so like when you look at the crystals you'll be like don't doubt myself (laughs) right right well it's funny we talk about this the magic of the thing, it's like a chicken or the egg thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not that we have to believe that the crystals have power to just magically remove obstacles. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that our thinking and changing our thinking is, in essence, the magic yes. that yeah. can lead to change. And these things are, are ways to kind of uh, make it physical or make mm-hmm. it tangible. I mean, I can tell you already, I've only had this for two days, right? Yes. And every obstacle in my life is gone. Stop it. uh, (laughs) No. (laughs) But what I can say is even just the ritual of when I come into my garage, which is my office space, this is sitting on my shelf, and I go, oh, the obstacle thing, right. (laughs) And I light it, and I say to myself, well, self-doubt, dude. You got to – let's remove that Mm -hmm, mm self-doubt. It focuses me. It reminds me. What are you doubting? Oh, that project? Right, right, right. So put that self-doubt aside. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it does it because you're, you're, there's consciousness around yes. it. But the back of the candle says, removes barriers and demolishes blockages in your life to clear a new way forward for you so you can regain clarity and strength to bring you closer to what you want. Yes. This candle, which is great. That's exactly what I need. This candle pairs well. I love that it tells you what it oh, pairs well like with. wine. <laughs> yeah. It pairs well with dragon's blood resin, Ooh. Uh, Palo Santo essential spray, and sun matches. Hmm. Well, thank you so much. I, I can't wait to continue to use it. Here's a question. Do I change my intention daily, or should I should, should this candle represent uh, removing self-doubt every um, time I light it? I mean, I guess, like, it would be more powerful if you had just like one intention that you focused on but i mean i don't think it hurts to have multiple yeah i mean i can tell you right now every day is just going to be about removing self-doubt and that's fine yeah that's a good one news slash that's right it's time for your news slash Zack Snyder's upcoming zombie film, Army of the Dead, is getting a prequel anime series called Army of the Dead Lost Vegas, and an international prequel of the film is also on the way. Shay Hatton is writing both the prequel and the animated series, with Matthias Schweighoffer directing the prequel that will center on his character from Army of the Dead. Bruce Campbell just released a new collection of essays. It's called The Cool Side of My Pillow, and it's now available from Amazon for Kindle. 
Campbell says, I wanted to write another book, but I'd already yammered on about myself in two previous autobiographies, so it was time to mix things up. The cool side of my pillow is a collection of essays. Don't let the fancy word fool you. I'm not trying to get highbrow or rant myself blue, but there are experiences and observations outside of the entertainment industry that I feel are worth sharing. And in Netflix horror news, there are currently no plans for another season of The Haunting. On Twitter recently, Mike Flanagan said, At the moment, there are no plans for more chapters. Never say never, of course. But right now, we are focused on a full slate of other projects for 2021 and beyond. If things change, we will absolutely let everyone know. And that's it. That's your News Slash. News Slash. The Monster Squad is a 1987 horror comedy directed by Fred Decker and written by Decker and Shane Black. The movie stars Andre Gower and Ryan Lambert as kids that form a squad to take on a team of universal monsters. Although the film wasn't a hit upon initial release, it has gained the status of cult classic. In this interview, we're joined by original castmates Andre and Ryan, along with their producer Henry McComas, who helped make the documentary about the fandom of the Monster Squad called Wolfman's Got Nards. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this conversation for some time now. I'm glad you all could could be here. Oh, was that to us? <laughs> yes. Who else would it be to? Of course. I was trying so hard. I really wanted to screw up your intro there, but I, I refrained. So let's start at the top for, for Andre and Ryan. How did you first get involved with the film The Monster Squad? Was it just the regular old audition process? Were you actors in LA and this was just another audition that came your way? Uh, that's pretty much how it came out for me. It's just like, yeah, I got a call, got the audition, went in, read the sides, where's leather jacket smokes, got it. <laughs> that's about as simple as it is for for coolness of Ryan. Uh, yeah, just, you know, regular audition process, you know, like normal. Uh, the only thing different on my side of the story with Monster Squad is I originally auditioned for the role of Rudy. So I ah. never actually read or screen tested for Sean um, because that jerk Ryan Lambert came in and murdered his audition as Rudy and the, the rest is history. At the time, were you horror fans? Were you, were you monster kids? Yeah, I loved all the, you know, I'd like to stay up really late and, and try to catch like all those things like really late at night. Um, I loved Elvira and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'd try to catch as much as I could, but I was also like a little uh, scared of rubber masks when I was a kid. Huh? Like, I, like <laughs> not really like that. Not it didn't matter if it was supposed to be like a scary monster. It didn't. If it was like Richard Nixon, I was like still scared of it. Like it's like why are you putting why are you putting something over your face? Now I can't see your face. It like freaked me out. So you know the whole thing about like creature makeup and all that that always kind of freaked me out. But I could watch the films. But as soon as I was on set and saw it, I was like. Ugh. <laughs> What do you mean used to be scared of rubber masks? I know, used right? To? You're still scared of rubber masks. You know, I think, yeah, it was the time Ryan mentioned the perfect thing for that kind of era was Elvira. And what was she on, late or Saturday? Like she was on late, right? And you got to see some stuff that you would never see. Uh, I think she was sort of like our Svengoolie because I didn't get Svengoolies. Like, I got Elvira, which I think we got the better end of that, you know, uh, you know, attractiveness scale of Cassandra Peterson. <laughs> But, um, I, you know, we also, Ryan and I talked about this too. Like we grew up and we watched, like we watched old stuff too, which I don't think a lot of kids would sit down and watch, you know, the old stuff. Like if something was black and white or, or, or classic, 
and it's ancient now, but uh, I, I think that was made the difference sometimes. So you kind of get an understanding of where things come from. But I mean, the first horror movie I ever saw was Wizard of Oz. So, you know, you see that early. <laughs> And that's absolutely a horror movie. It is terrifying. I agree. <laughs> it's terrifying. So were you aware of like the universal monsters? You had the awareness going into the project that, oh, wow, we're going to kind of like be a part of uh, recreating some of the classic universal monsters. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we knew it obviously right away from the screenplay. Uh, but when you got, you know, when it, when it finally appeared in front of you, you're like, oh, we actually are working <laughs> with Frankenstein's monster. There's Dracula over there. There's the mummy. There's the Gill Man. You know, obviously they had to look a little different, um, yeah. as you know, it's explained in the doc. But uh, uh, it still was. Uh, it was pretty fascinating to see that in person. It was. I enjoyed seeing you know a new a new imagining or an updated vision of these classic you know kind of characters and creatures. Because uh, you know they go they go back even further than the movies you know with with literature and 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 the books and and comics and and weird stuff but I, you know I was a creature from Black Lagoon fan he's my favorite guy so that was kind of neat to do you know what's the, the fourth iteration or fifth iteration of mm -hmm. that kind of character in a movie at the time um, and I never saw number three until a couple weeks ago with Henry it was, <laughs> it was quite an experience. <laughs> That was three, was right? Like, we watched three, Henry? That was three. Yeah, he, he yeah. walks among us. Yeah, he, the creature walks among us. Are there any memories from set that really stand out to you um, as being a particularly exciting experience for a kid to have? Well, Ryan was going through packs of cigarettes. So. Yeah. <laughs> that was before the movie. Um <laughs> I think obviously, you know, we always talk about that last week or two of shooting the the kind of final action sequence with all the craziness going on. And um, I mean, the scene where Ryan takes takes down Wolfman's badass and a lot going on there. You don't actually realize how much is going on leading up and into all that moment. Uh, but I do remember standing. I think we were done shooting and we were signed out, but I wanted to stick around and watch. Uh, Wolfman explode in midair because that was that's a yeah. big, that's a big thing and you knew that was you know you see it you read it in the script and then they're going to be doing it and you're like I want to watch that <laughs> you know I'm I'm now just going to be an observer and 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 watch this and I remember where I was standing and where now that's a one taker and you know that's a one take with multiple cameras and they got it and that was cool but one thing I think it was remember I was just remembering this this was back in so '86 we're shooting it and now they have, you know, about, you know, we've all shot stuff now that has the lightning effect and you just get the lightning rig, you know, the lighting, the lighting lightning rig just goes click, 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 cause it's hard to get uh -huh. that snap of how fast they didn't have those back then. They had these giant scissor bomb, you know, scissor things that actually made lightning. There was these huh. big giant electrical thing. I forgot what they're called. Oh, wow. like X, X candles or something, but like it, it's like touching two, power poles together and there were these two nodes and they scissored them together and when they hit it goes bang and it just it sizzle and it scares the shit out of you hmm. and you're in an enclosed stage with this like chemical electrical reaction exploding <laughs> it's insane wow is that safe probably not there's footage in the dock of you actually you actually being blown away by the super fans and stuff. What was that like? You know, that's the other thing. You're shooting that sequence and Ryan and out there and, and Ashley and everybody else, you know, they have these huge giant kind of small airplane engine fans that are 
you know, blowing tornadoes at you and they're throwing a bunch of junk in front of it. Like you're getting hit with leaves and fake bricks and road signs and all this stuff. It was just, you're just getting pelted with stuff you know, for five minutes straight. That was pretty insane. And then going up on a rigging and, um, you know, doing a little stunt work, you know, during all that craziness, like nothing, nothing compares. When the film comes out, are you uh, aware of whether or not it's a success? Does, do you think of it like, uh, are my friends talking about the movie that I was just in? Are they talking about it as much as this other film we all loved? Or was it just a great experience as you were making it and you didn't think much about the, the aftermath? Or are you aware of like where it sits in the pop culture lexicon at that age? Well, I think there's a personal answer there and then sort of like an, uh, you know, an, uh, an objective answer there. Ryan and I would actually go like we jump in Ryan's car, you know, a week or two after it opened to go see how it was going. Now I got to go around with Fred and Shane and a bunch of on opening night to see how many people weren't in the theaters. But then like the next week, <laughs> Ryan and I would be like, we would jump in, he had his own car and um, love, the, love, still love the blue car. And um, the, uh, <laughs> we'd go around and, uh, and try to, you know, not sneak in, but just go ask if we could see how it's going. And then like, we could only do that for like another weekend or so, cause it wasn't around. Yeah. And you know, then you kind of, you, you do kind of, remember that i i do remember an awesome story that you know there was a party you know it was an ongoing thing where there used to be a party every week where the kids in the industry would go and 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 ryan and i were there and my dad had dropped me off and then ryan was like hey man you want to get out of here let's go see how the movie's doing at universal and i was like okay cool and i was like i'm not supposed to leave this party but let's go and uh we drove up to universal studios up on the city what's now city walk and uh, went in line and like, we're like, oh, let's go ask the box office. And I remember Ryan and I were standing there and we actually like jumped over the kind of little kind of stanchion chain. And there was a guy standing right in front of me that I almost bumped into. And it was my dad. <laughs> he had dropped me off at this party, you know, where I was only supposed to stay at the party. And then he was going to go watch a movie on his by himself. And I almost got caught, but uh, that's crazy. Yeah, it was like the the second the weekend thing was, or something. Is he wasn't seeing the Monster Squad? Oh no! <laughs> oh, he was scary. watching Lost Boys. Yeah, he was probably seeing. I don't know whatever. Uh, was there a Bond movie out that weekend or something? Was <laughs> what was the dad movie out that weekend? Yeah, Gene. Ha if it was Gene Hackman or like it, Stallone, it was, or it was Gung, it was Gung Ho with Michael. <laughs> Michael, there King. you go. <laughs> I don't think my dad was going seeing Mr. Mom. So Henry, you were later involved as a producer on the documentary about the fandom surrounding the Monster Squad. But when did you first become a fan yourself? Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I inherited a box full of VHS tapes from my older brother uh, that was usually ripped from. HBO, Showtime, things like that. Uh, and I was uh, combing through all of them looking for the nude flicks. Uh, and I wasn't able to find one. Instead, I found uh, a white labeled uh, VHS tape that just had in Sharpie the Monster Squad. And I put it in and I completely got transported. And uh, I started to share the tape around my block with my friends around the cul-de-sac. And after that, I picked up a VHS camera that my parents had from their wedding. Uh, and uh, VHS was actually on its way out as we were going into a digital format. 
but I would go shoot movies on the VHS camcorder and transfer it into a digital feed to uh, cut on my iMac and uh, also do VCR to VCR. That's some nerd talk that you don't care about. Long story Oh, I short, love it. <laughs> I used to long, do that VCR to VCR. Long story short, this kid that fell in love with the Monster Squad got his group of friends to make movies. Uh, and then flash forward, I'm leaving Pilgrim Studios, which is the place that I worked at at the time. And Andre is out in the parking lot. And huh. uh, my one of my buddies recognized him. And I was totally fan struck and just started throwing my business cards at him and saying, what are you doing? What are you working on? What can we do? And he talked about this idea of a documentary. And we just sat down and uh, over a series of weeks really talked about the aesthetic of the doc, what we were both looking for, what was the most important stuff, the feel, the premium effect. And we pitched it to Pilgrim and we put a package together and uh, we were greenlit to go into production through a deal between Andre's company, Fitter Piper and Pilgrim Media Group. So because of that VHS getting me to teach myself about filmmaking, I ultimately ended up getting to make a movie with the Monster Squad. That's oh, that's so, so beautiful. Cool. <laughs> so at what point did the idea to make a documentary about this film and the fandom surrounding it hit you, Andre? What what Was there a specific incident, uh, an inciting incident? Was it one of the screenings? Was it just the general popularity you saw growing? When did you think, ah, I think this, this deserves a film? I mean, I think kind of the, this is a very long answer, but I think the short answer to that is basically the, the cumulative effect and experience that, myself and like Ryan and you know when we go on these appearances or go to conventions and you know we would sit around and talk about it we like this is very interesting that this movie's having a resurgence and that's kind of fun how long is this going to last and we thought it would die out and it didn't and but then it was actually the the real kind of inciting incident was multiple incidences of you know us uh you know Ryan and I you know pairing at a convention together or you know meeting these people, if I'd go out to a screening appearance somewhere and hearing these stories from these individuals of actually how much this movie meant to them uh, it, to, the, to that day and then even further, not just when they saw it, but how it impacted them and connected with them and stayed with them for some reason. And then I got to the point just before kind of the 30th anniversary year that though I, you know, I, I say I thought those stories were a story. When you start making the documentary, what was it? Uh, what was it like to revisit the film, but now from an entirely different perspective? I'm sure you were discovering things that you must not have been aware of as a kid. I think about uh, Fred talking about how he wasn't happy with some of the coverage and like the pressure from the studio to kind of get more out of his days. Um, what were some other instances of things that maybe you didn't know were happening on the set or throughout the production as a kid that you were surprised to find out as an adult? You know, I think stuff that was directly kind of Monster Squad production related, you don't, you, you didn't really know and run into like you're asking until you almost sit down with Shane and Fred because they're kind of that, you know, direct source mm -hmm. and getting the kind of origin stories of how things got and then during production than after and those were two of our you know later kind of later interviews and so those some of that stuff was kind of eye-opening but we were very lucky that they both wanted to sit down and you know just kind of explain their experience without any kind of you know angle or you know pre, you know pre-visage of what it should be 
And, you know, I think the Fred interview is, is, is probably the most impactful thing in that whole movie because the way it worked out is, you know, he sat down and, and just kind of started talking and uh, opened up for, you know, hours. And it's a, you know, it's a kind of a through line throughout the entire narrative of the documentary. And, and, and his interview is sort of like that anti-interview, you know, sort of the anti kind of um, testimonial because uh, everything else is kind of you know celebrating and rah rah and cheering and what it means and 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 yet Fred's is a, is is a little deeper than that. It's a little bit different, a little darker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting the way he talked about his relationship to the film and how it was like calling a shot, you know, so many years in advance that wouldn't wouldn't really uh, he wouldn't make true on that or make good on that until the fandom kind of caught up with the film. For me as a fan, I just loved it the second I saw it and have loved it ever since. And it's it's it was interesting for me to see that Fred had to live through it not being accepted and regarded highly upon its release. I've only ever kind of grown up in in loving it and my friends loving it. And that's just what it was to me. Was there anything that you didn't feel like uh, you covered with the documentary? Was there an interview you didn't get or was there... Um, just an angle of the film. I was surprised at how much you covered. I mean, you even went into, you even highlighted some of the problematic sides of the film because of the era that it was born out of. And and obviously you, you talk a lot about uh, the loss of, of Brent and how much you wish he could be here to see this love and appreciation for something he was a part of, which I thought was beautiful. Was there anything that you didn't get to cover with the film or that you cut out of the film because it, didn't quite work. We're still waiting on Ryan Gosling's interviews, so there might be another version of this documentary someday. The Gosling so, edition. It's yeah. the that's the Criterion edition. He was too busy with some movie named Blade Runner or something. <laughs> I really wanted to get Stephen King so we could interview him and make sure he knows that the reason why people are wearing Stephen King rule shirts wasn't necessarily because of him, but because of the Monster Squad. I think he was busy too. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, do you think, and this is maybe too specific of a question, and maybe it should be a question for Fred if I ever get to talk to him, but I imagine it must be difficult, and I imagine not to be reductive, but maybe the kind of the chip on his shoulder that even comes across in the documentary in regards to Monster Squad is that, well, oh, it's so wonderful. Everybody's a fan of it now, but where were you when it came out? Uh, when it maybe could have mattered more? for for his career or for everyone involved for the box office and i understand that i i understand making something and feeling like now's when i need everybody to show up not 16 years from now um but as a fan i look at that and think but it did matter eventually to a lot of people uh do you think he just has a hard time um letting that sink in or appreciating that because it didn't happen upon release day or what do you think that relationship is between him and the project the last thing we want to do is uh speak for fred sure Uh, but uh one of the things i can share as an aspiring filmmaker myself is fred's story is the most inspirational story Mm -hmm. and where he might have seen it as a chip on his shoulder i think as of recently especially after the documentary released it's not that much of a chip anymore. Uh, It was hard to get his interview. It was hard to lock him down. He was busy. He wasn't sure if he wanted to do it. He couldn't uh, picture what the documentary was going to be like, but with uh, 
Andre and I uh, keep, as we kept reaching out to him, he finally agreed to do the interview. And if you notice, you watch that interview, it starts out in broad daylight. And by the end of it, it's pitch black because the sun has gone down and they're in, in the background. Fred was lit, of course. We did our job. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but all that shows is how excited he was to actually talk about the project and answer the questions and have the conversation when it finally came. Um, it, I, I think his, you know, relationship with the movie, obviously no one can have the same, he's the only one that can have that. And that's, and that's rightly his. And I, I think he's gone through a journey and a process on this with this one thing that everybody knows him for. Uh, I do think that, uh, you know, back in, you know, that era, when you make one, two, three films that don't perform and your barometer of success is 48 hours or 72 hours in a number of theaters, if you don't reach a certain thing, then you're just, it's like you're yanking the plug out of the wall. And Monster Squad, I thought, is definitely a word of mouth movie. And the kids that went that saw it on opening weekend went right to their schoolyard on Monday and said, yo, man, you got to come next weekend and see this movie. I'm going to see it again. And they're like, yeah, I just couldn't because I had, you know, Eagle Scouts or something. My mom, like my mom wouldn't let me go. Uh, and so they go on the next Saturday and it's not there because it left after the first weekend and didn't get enough run. I think it's unfair to people like Fred, and he's not the only one that fell victim to that. But when you go right into director jail because of a 48-hour window, uh, it's unfair not only for him, but it's also unfair for us as moviegoers because we don't get to see all the stuff that they were going to make in the next couple of years because everybody's like, oh, we unplugged you. And I think that's total bullshit. And I think it's interesting to, you know, watch Fred over the last 10 or 12 years, right, Ryan, of like, you know, hanging out with him and, and kind of seeing and then getting to do, you know, more stuff with Shane and writing The Predator. And now he's got his own projects off the ground. Um, I mean, Ryan, like what do you, like over the last couple of years, like with Fred, not just with the doc, but over the years, like, you know, hanging out and dealing with Fred uh, at, you know, events and, and appearances. It's, it's, it's definitely been interesting. I'd say like he, uh, <clears throat> you know, we, we kind of went through like the very first like resurgence of, at least in our eyes uh, together. Cause we all went to Austin in 2006. Uh, so he saw, what the, he saw it at the same time we did like wow this is we didn't know this was happening uh but you know the i will say the screening in la at the egyptian theater when we were all there it was a madhouse like it was a madhouse that lobby after the film was over was like a complete madman i i've never seen anything like that like that was directed you know, that i was directly related to um and he was standing next to me and we were looking at the crowd, you know, we're kind of mingling around and people were coming up to us and asking us for, you know, to sign this, sign that. And uh, he looked at me and he said, did you know all this was happening? And I looked at him, I said, yep. And that to me, when I saw his face light up after he saw, now he saw the doc already. I could see in his eyes that he, like it was almost like he finally understood, okay, I'm giving myself into this now. Like I, I, I have to move on from what, what it was to what it is. Hmm. So, uh, and I think that helped him a lot to move on to other projects and, and be open to working with smaller 
groups of people to make films and get his get him back out there and stuff mm. like that. And I, I know, like Henry was saying, like I know he's working on some stuff, and I'm really proud of him. Let's talk about Fred for ten hours. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, it's such an interesting point uh, that you make that right. A, a director is judged by the back then by that forty eight hour window and then they may have created something that would have lasting effect on pop culture and inspire other writers and other directors but that doesn't equate to a currency even though it should i mean in the industry it should cause people to go back to those creators and say well you created something that meant something to generations um let's forget about those first 48 hours but you're right back then it it was uh it was a you know it was a death sentence of sorts because for me I you know growing up and loving these films I I treasure them like any other film I as a fan I have no awareness what they did at the box office I mean when people ask me what kind of movies I want to make I pretty much just say Night of the Creeps and Monster Squad and that's it I mean uh, the the you know, the the tone that Fred strikes is like is to is something that I feel I responded to as a, as a filmmaker more than many many other directors and i think the 80s the and this is a little bit of a tangent so i'll probably cut it out of the podcast but sapphire knows the chip i have on my shoulder about the 80s is that uh, when i go back and read reviews uh from 80s films that i love reviews that uh, that were written at the time and they're like ah you know this part wasn't that good or i don't know this was a little over the top or this blah blah, blah. and i want to tell those reviewers you know we're not going to get these movies again like we're not going to get these monster movies. I read a review of, and this is a weird reference, but Stay Tuned, right? The John Ritter. Oh, great uh, movie. Well, when I saw that as a kid, I was like, well, I mean, what else can you do? That's a perfect film. Like They had everything I oh, I wanted. And I went and read the reviews from that time. And it was just as if, and obviously they would think, reviewers in the 80s thought, well, these movies are a dime a dozen. So fuck this one. This one's not as good as, you know, Beetlejuice. It's a Beetlejuice ripoff. And I'm like, we're not going to get movies like this for much longer. It's these 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 movies that had that were so eccentric and so colorful and and genre based um, are going to kind of disappear with that decade. So I am also annoyed that there weren't bigger box office returns for a lot of these films or better reviews for these films because I think that era gave birth to some truly inspiring and fun and adventurous horror, especially horror comedy. You know, which is less and less these days too. It was the '80s; just weren't afraid to blend those genres, and and Fred and Shane are so, I think, masterful at blending those genres. So, end of end of Bowser rant. He just wishes it was the '80s all the time. <laughs> let it go. Bowser. I know. I need to let go and and move <laughs> on and realize uh, what it is and not what it what it was. Well. Thank you all for being here, I, and congratulations on the on the documentary. And uh, I thought it was so it was so insightful. It was it was emotional, and it was even cathartic as a fan to see uh, a kind of all of the love collected in one space for that film. And uh, I appreciate your time, and we'll, would love to see what you guys are doing next. Do you have anything that you're working on now, or any projects you want to talk about before we say goodbye? We sure do, and we're not allowed to talk about it. Hell yeah. Oh, talk man. to you guys later. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually have a record coming out. Oh, oh awesome. During all this COVID time. So uh, it's being mastered right now. Uh, the band's called Kill Moi. 
the record's called uh, No Seriously Hold Me Motherfucker. Nice. Should be out maybe by March. So nice. all my socials will have all that up as soon as that comes out. Perfect. And one of the cool things, since Ryan mentioned his music and Kill Moi in particular, no, nothing really is a part of the documentary that isn't part of the kind of family or the group. And everybody involved in it is connected in some way. And if you listen throughout the documentary, um, a majority of the soundtrack to Wolfman's Got Nards is actually uh, Ryan Lambert and band's music. Awesome. Which a lot of people don't know, but uh, yeah. if, you, if you know the if you know the songs in here, you can hear it re, you know repeat every once in a while. So uh, yeah, we're grateful I, that I, you know we got to work that out. So I finally got that credit at the end of the at the scrolling. You know, like it says, written and performed by Ryan Lambert. I'm like, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah! That's all I've ever wanted. I wanted to be on a soundtrack. <laughs> awesome. Monster Squad is just the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, totally. Hell yeah. Well, thank you all for being here. We enjoyed it. Thanks, Thank man. you for having us. No, I appreciate it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Aaron Pruner is an actor and writer who recently became a father. Here's our conversation with him discussing the intersection between fatherhood and horror. Thank you so much for speaking with us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Um, so I actually came across your article. I was searching for, what did I search for? Bowser, do you remember? Did I ever tell you? No, you just sent me the link. I don't know how you found it. I think it was something like New Perspectives Horror. Oh, yeah. That is <laughs> then, what it was. Yeah. And then your article showed up. And I was like, oh, I've never read anything like this. So, um, yeah, I'd love to know just what led you to writing that article. Actually, what the article is about first. Well, then. okay. The article, uh, thank you, by the way, for reading <laughs> it. You know, it's good to know. I've, I've gotten people reaching out to me over the past uh, couple of years about it. So, I, it. it Makes me feel good to know that my message is reaching the masses. Now, basically, <laughs> I started as an actor. I am currently an entertainment journalist. And a lot of the stuff I cover is genre-related. And this came about my daughter at that point. So my daughter was born in 2018. And I was working. Uh, I was freelancing for multiple places. Roughly, I don't know, she was like three or four months old. And I was, a, I was doing a copy editor job at Entertainment Tonight while watching the walking dead on my break because i was going to be writing a piece about the walking dead for a different website and it was an episode of the walking dead and i don't even remember uh what exactly was happening but at one point um the whisperers went to use a what looked like a, a baby that was the age of my daughter as bait mm. for zombies now yeah. This would not have affected me at all if I didn't have a child. And I flipped out. I, like, I seriously, I almost threw the computer. I, I was so angry <laughs> at the writers and the filmmakers. Like, why would you do that? 
why would you, and I had to get up and go for a walk and calm down. And when I came back, I'm like, the show hasn't changed. This isn't the first time they've done something messed up like that. And I started mm-hmm. having to think about, oh my God, parenthood has not only changed my perspective on the world, it's changed my barometer of what I can handle with genre entertainment. And yeah. I, I, I realized that that for a while there, I couldn't watch horror movies. And I watched, I mean, I grew up on horror movies. Horror movies is, I, this. that was the gateway to getting me into the job I have now. I started writing for a website called Icons of Fright as a hobby 10 years yeah. ago, which led me to Dread Central and Bloody Disgusting and uh, Fearnet, which no longer exists, and, you know, to where I am now. And then suddenly the person who I thought I was, I'm no longer able to watch certain things like that. So that that moment, along with a few other instances where after I would put my, my daughter to bed, I'd turn on Shudder or Netflix and try to watch something like it it was really difficult to get through hereditary and uh you know i went to a screening of midsummer uh before it hit theaters and even that like i suddenly wasn't able to stomach movies that i would normally relish in and i had to really come to terms with the fact that it was because i'm a dad now and funny enough i i had this uh, so on my podcast i do a podcast about parenthood actually and my first guest was Devin Sawa, the star of Final Destination. And I said, I have, I'm having you on because having a kid, it feels like Final Destination around every corner for me. Like I'm constantly seeing the possible accidents or, or you know. Yeah. <laughs> I've never things. heard anyone say that. And I, but I feel like that's what I would think as a parent. And I'm not a parent. It's yeah. so funny that you said that. And my yeah. wife my wife doesn't think that way. And, you know, my, my daughter right now is Interesting. two. And my wife has been giving her, like, glass, like, glasses to drink out of. Like, not, not sippy cups. <laughs> oh. Like, real glass. And she <laughs> sips, like, currently my daughter's really into drinking tea out of my wife's fine china. Like, she drinks uh-huh. out of teacups. And I'm constantly like, ah, you know, it's going to break and we're going to have an accident. And right now during COVID, we don't want to go to the hospital. Like all these things are going through my head. And she has to remind me, she's like, Aaron, you need to take a breath. You know, we're, we're trying to give her (laughs) these tools to be able to operate. I'm like, but she's two. And I think it just goes back to this anxiety that I have because I never had a dad. I never had even a drive to become a parent. I didn't think it would ever happen for me. And now that I'm in this, my podcast is called The Dad Word Spiral for a reason. I felt like I was spiraling out of control uh, anxiety-wise about, am I going to do this right? What is the right way of doing this? Dads don't really have these conversations much. And especially since I grew up loving horror, you know, I had Fangoria um, pictures all over my walls when I was a kid. And now it's like I can't (laughs) – I either can't stomach what I used to be able to stomach or now I'm watching stuff and I'm seeing things from the dad's perspective, like Pet Cemetery. Suddenly I'm like, well, the dad Mm – you know, when I was a kid, the original Pet Cemetery, I was like, that dad made the stupidest decision. And now I'm like, "Eh, what would I do? (laughs) Yeah. Have you you rewatched The Shining as a father, the you know he's kind of the yes. most infamous bad dad of horror. Yes. How does that make you feel now? I watch The Shining once a year. 
The wow. Shining is my favorite horror movie. Now, well, okay, no. I did not watch The Shining the year my daughter was born. <laughs> okay. uh, what's funny about this is Mike Flanagan, the director of Dr. Sleep, and I have talked mm-hmm. numerous times uh, about the father-son um, relationship in that. I actually yeah. wrote an article about this for Dread Central um, because when I w- it was weird, you know, becoming a dad. I revisited The Shining eventually, and it's funny because for the longest time, I felt like in a way I was Danny, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in that hotel. When I was a kid, I was I fended a lot for myself. My dad was never around, uh, but there were certain there were certain I'm I'm not going to use the term hereditary, but my dad had certain behavioral issues that my mom tells me I have. And mm-hmm. when you have a kid and you don't have a dad to reference, because my dad passed away uh, 15 years ago, you start having these questions about, well, am I going to become like him? And am I going to do to my kid what he did to me? You know what I mean? Right. And so in revisiting The Shining and also watching Dr. Sleep, I came to this this moment of like, holy crap, I was da- I felt like I was Danny at some point, but am I Jack now? And huh. it mm. sort of brought me this sense of closure because, I mean, The Shining, The Shining was the first horror movie I remember watching from beginning to end when I was a kid. And it was one of those uh, experiences that I think helped shape who I became. Um, that, <laughs> that movie means a whole lot to me but then Mm -hmm. watching dr sleep and seeing how danny became dan and reconciled with his issues with his dad in that movie which did not happen in the book um really had me kind of look inward and and come to grips with all of that anxiety i was feeling when my wife was pregnant leading up to my daughter's birth about you know not having a dad not having those answers and mm-hmm. maybe my father wasn't the monster that i had built him up to be because my dad was an alcoholic and my dad was a drug addict and there was all these things in his life that for the longest time growing up my mom instilled in me you can't be like that you can't be like that mm-hmm. but after a while it's like you know i'm going to be who i am And then you become a parent and it's like, okay, where do you draw the line between, um, I don't know, uh, referencing your experience as a kid growing up, how that informs who you are as a parent and making your own way away from that, like starting your own path, Mm -hmm. making your own rule, like making your new rules and new uh, uh, a new foundation with morals and lessons and how you are going to raise your kid. And that was something that, man, it took so long <laughs> and I still, I still battle with it, but I am at a place now where I feel like I, uh, I am a dad for a while there. My daughter, you know, I had this kid and I, I'm married and it's like, I never thought I was going to be married, let alone have a dad. And I felt like I was an imposter and, um, mm-hmm. watching the shining. Now I can see Jack's flaws and not look at him as just a complete one note monster. Like I used to, when I was a kid viewing my father through my mom's stories. It's an interesting thing that, 
you you're saying there's a sensitivity to horror films now, but also those films kind of brought a certain amount of catharsis for you as a dad. Yes, it's it's a it's a it's a weird road I'm traveling currently, and you know <laughs> I, I barely have time now to watch stuff because you know I'm doing the parenting thing at home. My wife is doing that, and we're both um, working. So whenever I do watch things, it's at night, and I have learned. You know, when I watched, uh, we watched Sinister, I did it late. And I used to watch horror movies until like 1, 2, 3 in the morning. Right. I can't do right. that now. So I have to be <laughs> responsible and know uh, where the cutoff is and what uh, lighthearted chaser I'm going to put on after the fact so I don't have <laughs> these, these uh, OCD, anxiety-fueled nightmares. Because, I mean, I need to be the strong person in the household because my daughter has been dealing with uh, she's been she's at a point now developmentally where the bad dreams have started and so now mm. not only have I been able to at least start reconciling my relationship with horror movies I I am now brought back to a point in my life early on when I was afraid to go to sleep and now my daughter is and especially last mm. night in particular we we made the mistake of using the term sweet dreams and that set her off because oh wow dream, the word dream is scary to her because she's been waking up with bad dreams and so like uh... it's been a it's been it's been an interesting journey but it's been a it's been a it's been an educational one and also it's been one that has helped me overcome certain issues of mine you know what it comes down to to me to be a good dad is and, and I mean this, when my wife got pregnant, I had a year's worth of anxiety about being a dad because mm-hmm. I grew up just being told over and over again, my dad was a monster, don't be like your father, which translated into my head of do not become a dad because mm-hmm. you will become your father. And in now being one, it's – I have to remind myself, the, the it's very basic. It seems simple, but – it's not the simplest thing to do. Um, just be there. Be in the moment. Be yeah. responsible. Be mindful. And that's the bottom line, the basic thing that I think is lays the foundation for being a, even just an okay dad. Be there for your kid. Because mm-hmm. mine wasn't for me. And, you know, that led to all sorts of issues that I was, you know, resolving in therapy. So what's your relationship with horror like now? Are you still watching the films, but not late at night? Yes. Have the uh, have the sensitivities gotten a, a little better? Where are you at with the genre currently? What's they the last have, horror film you watched? The last one I watched was The Lodge, I okay. think. Mm. I, I don't get to watch them Another very often because, <laughs> because so my schedule is crazy every day. Like, I, I told you before we started recording, I thought we were recording tomorrow because <laughs> every day blends together right now. I work from home. My wife works from home. Uh, we trade off in, in parenting my daughter. I make dinner. We do bath time, bedtime. Boom. Once that's done, I go back to working or I watch stuff. So it's very... Um, no, I'm sorry. The last movie, the last horror movie I watched was uh, the Night of the Creeps. Um, oh my was, gosh! Yeah, that was with a friend of mine uh, around Halloween. Oh, um, that's but, one of my favorites. One yeah, of my favorites. yeah, and I'd never seen it. That's a classic oh my Lord. movie. 
and I had never seen it until that moment. Thrill me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the last horror film I saw by myself that wasn't a retread like Sinister was The Lodge. And boy, was that mm. grueling. But I got through <laughs> it, and, and, and I was smart. I watched it earlier in the evening. Um, <laughs> but it's funny because now I'm watching things where I am not just focused on story. I'm now focused on the choices the people are making huh. in the story. Uh, I didn't used to focus that much on that beforehand. And I, and I think, I think it's because I am so focused on the choices I make now as a person and how these choices I make affect my wife, affect my mom, affect my daughter. Mm -hmm. Before I became a dad, I'm not going to say I was an asshole, but before I became a dad, the, the choices I made were just based solely on my life. And so right. now when I'm watching stuff, like I just had to watch a thing for an assignment, I was all just focused on all the stupid choices the characters <laughs> that we were supposed to be rooting for were making. And I'm like, right. what? this doesn't make any sense. I don't, you know, or even watching The Stand, which just came back. It's like, mm -hmm. the, you know, I, I am now drawn into a story, not just because of the premise, but because of the choices the characters are making. And why they're making it psychologically, and if it and if it involves a a father daughter you know dynamic, then that, that all the more. There's this isn't even a horror related thing, but there is a new animated movie on Apple TV called Wolf Walkers, which is incredible. I highly recommend you watch it. I think it'll win the Oscar. But there is a father daughter dynamic in that story that cut right into my heart, and that would have never happened before. I would have never even focused on that before. So right. um, it's, cr it, it's crazy. And I know you asked specifically about horror, but this is happening to me throughout all the genre stuff I watch. Even yeah. the boys, the recent season of the boys, uh, what Homelander goes through in, um, in reconciling with his lack of a parental figure and how that suddenly translates to him being a father to his kid, at least mm -hmm. trying to be, I, I would have never, I would have never even thought twice about it. And now I'm like, Oh my God, I want to talk about that specifically. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I am now. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. This has been uh, an enlightening conversation an encouraging conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Before we sign off, here's what's coming up on Alter this week. Three days on January 1st. When three women friends sense danger on a camping trip, they keep each other laughing until a horrible revelation makes them feel more alone than ever. Then, Blood Highway on January 4th. Two bikers go out in a blaze of glory to rescue hostages from a serial killer and his undead clientele. Then, The Remnant on January 6th. A team of con artists posing as paranormal investigators steal from the home of an affluent elderly woman, only to find themselves unleashing a dormant, malevolent spirit. That's all for this week's episode of Alter Weekly. Until next time, stay altered. If you want to help the Alter Society decide what to watch next, then go to youtube.com forward slash watch 
altar and click on the community tab, there'll be a poll where you can help us decide what we should watch next on the Altar Society. You can catch new episodes of Altar Weekly every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and download. Altar Weekly is produced by Andrew Bowser with theme music by Sapphire Sindalo. Altar Weekly is executive produced by Stephen Michael and Lauren Palmer at Gunpowder and Sky. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.